Today's scripture reading is in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 through 25. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 1004. Romans 7, chapter, Romans 7, chapter, chapter 7, verses 12 through 25. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. As then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might, be, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold in our sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will will to do that I do not practice, for what I hate that I do. If then I do not what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who, to, who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good that I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but, a, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that is evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God accordingly to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... With the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. Uh, When we think about the life of this congregation... I really, really believe we are at a very exciting time in the life of this congregation. I believe that if the Lord could come and speak to us now, I would like to think that one thing he would tell us is that the best days of the life of this congregation is out in front of us. We're at a very, very important time. Next week, we will begin a very in-depth study in the scriptures of what our responsibility is to each other. Now, we have already begun that last week and will continue today as it relates to what we're trying to accomplish over the next quarter. But by next Sunday, we will really be digging deeper into the scriptures to see what is our responsibility to each other. I want to beg you, if you are not attending a Bible class, if there has ever been a time in your life, now is the time to attend a Bible class. Please get involved in this study. Please study deeply. Please pray fervently. Please help us all to be what God wants us to be. We have responsibilities. The model that God gives us of a shepherd is a very, very beautiful illustration of how we truly are our brother's keeper. We truly do have responsibility to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would love to think 
that when an entire congregation studies for a quarter together of what God would will for them to become and to grow in that maturation, we surely would be more like the Lord in the way that we care for each other. And so please attend a Bible class this morning. If you need help finding one, uh, there'll be some of us out in the foyer. We would love to help you find a class and be prayerful about this study together that we truly, truly can have a congregation where no one is invisible, no one is alone, no one is left out in any way. Do keep in mind that also at the same time we're doing this is also the time that we're letting it be known where we want to serve. And so please complete the SOS so that that, uh, that work can continue to be organized and great work over the next couple of years can continue to be done. Alignment. You know, if you don't line up right on the basketball floor, it can cost you a game. If your front end of your car is not in line, it can wear out some tires pretty quickly. But you know, there is a spiritual aspect of alignment that Paul tells us in Romans the 6th and the 7th chapter that is really far more important than any other alignment that will ever take place in our life. Romans 7 is oftentimes considered one of those difficult passages that Paul writes in this beautiful book of the epistle of Romans. As we look at this passage today, there's no way that we can decipher all of these passages that are kind of wordy. They're beautiful. I don't mean that to belittle them. But in one sermon, we cannot wade through all of this beautiful writing. But what I would like for us to do is I'd like for us to look primarily at three questions that Paul addresses out of the end of the 6th chapter and throughout the 7th chapter. As he shows us this battle that all of us will deal with, all of us that set our mind on Christ. All of us that set our mind on Christ, we have a battle where our mind is set on Christ, but yet our mind and our soul is still trapped in this earthly body. And this earthly body is always going to experience temptation. And this earthly body is always going to fall and sin. We know we're going to experience temptation from James, the first chapter. He describes clearly how that happens. We also know that none of us have reached the point of perfection. Even the great apostle Paul, after serving his year as an apostle and as, as a faithful preacher and a missionary, he talks about that perfection in Philippians, the third chapter. And he talks about how perfect it is and what he wants to obtain. But then he says, I have not yet apprehended. And so even Paul now writes here in Romans, the seventh chapter, about this battle that he has where his mind is set on Christ, but his body is continually being pulled down by the carnal or sometimes called the fleshly nature. Now, I would like to give you at the beginning of this lesson an illustration, and I want to point out this is not an example of Romans 7, but I think it is a very good illustration of Romans 7 where literally flesh can work against an inward person. Brian Widener was considered, he was, a very uh, strong member, as a matter of fact, a leader of a gang in a white power supremacy group. The National Alliance was a part of his gang was related to. And whenever he and his wife, Julie, both were very active in this group, whenever they had their child, it brought them to a realization that Their racism, their life of hurting people and wishing harm upon so many around the world. They came to the realization that they weren't right. As a matter of fact, he later would describe himself, you know, I wasn't only a racist, I was a thug. 
holding their child, they decided they wanted a different life. You say, well, that's great. They just bow out of, of the skinheads and they just move into a, a, a clean living society, a good neighborhood, a good job. It sounds all good, doesn't it? They're walking away from it. Well, it's not so simple when you've devoted your life to a cause and you are the leader of the group and you have covered your body with all kind of communication of your hatred for all the other races. And so now, with his neck, his face, and his body covered, he found out that even though his heart was no longer racist, he couldn't convince anyone of that. He couldn't find anyone that would give him a job. He could not find friends that could look past the face-covered tattoos of razor blades dipped in blood, of Nazi symbols and other words and symbols of hatred. They lived the clean life, so to speak, for a while, but they were going broke. It got so desperate that they were so alone and so broke that he considered dipping his face in acid. He thought surely that whatever way that would disfigure his face would give him a more normal life than what he experienced with the marks that remained on his flesh even though the inside man had changed. When Julie saw how desperate her husband was, she did something that a few years earlier she would have never done. She called an African-American man he was a man of an, a leader of an anti-hate group. And she asked, please help us some way. He told her of a man that had walked away from a supremacist group in the 90s. They called him. They said, please help us in some way. He gave them some good advice. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave was, you need to call Joseph Roy. He's over the Southern Poverty Law Center. You see, Joseph Roy is the chief investigator of hate and extreme groups. And when he called him and introduced himself on the phone, Joseph said, that was like Osama bin Laden of the movement calling in. You see, Roy knew Widener very well. As a matter of fact, he described him before he ever talked with him on the phone that day as the pit bull of skinheads. No one was more aggressive, more confrontational, and more notorious, Roy said, of Widener. But he was a skeptic because he says, in my line of work, you rarely see a racist skinhead really turn away from their racism. They talked on the phone to him several times. Finally, they convinced him enough that he boarded a plane and he flew to Michigan to see if this couple was legit. He was impressed when he saw them in person, although he said it was quite a mixed message with the man answering the door covered in these tattoos that communicate such a hateful message, holding a child now that is is about three to four years of age, wearing a t-shirt that says, greatest dad in the world. He said, but you know, when I got to know him, I thought, maybe he is for real. And so he put him to the test. You see, what they needed was they needed at least $35,000 to surgically remove just the neck and face tattoos. 
so that he could have a normal life again. And so what he offered him was the opportunity to come to speak at their national convention where law enforcement from all over the country would be gathered and he could give intelligence of the skinhead movement. For that, he says, we'll do something that we've never done at our convention. We will ask everyone to go out and to find a donor that would give $35,000 to help you with your problem. He didn't have to think twice. He immediately agreed to do that, knowing the risk that it was. When that message leaked out, pig manure was poured all over their car. A lot of phone calls came in the middle of the night. Sometimes they would hang up. Other times, they would just simply say, you will die. Other times, sympathetic friends, even from the skinhead movement, would call and say, you really don't need to stay at your house tonight, and they would flee to a hotel. But finally, three months later, a donor was found under these conditions. Her name remained anonymous. He would have the tattoos removed. He would get his GED, and he would begin either studying some trade or go to college. He was so thankful. They loaded their vehicle. They moved to Tennessee for him to be able to see the chairman and the director of the plastic surgery department, Dr. Blake, in Vanderbilt University. It was there that they began a lot of procedures. As a matter of fact, it was there that he described to them how painful it was going to be. He said, we're going to go through the first procedure and your face is going to swell up with blisters and you're going to experience what will be many, many times worse than the worst sunburn you can ever imagine. And after that, it's going to take weeks for the black eyes and the blistering to go away. And when it does, we have to do this again. He went through the first procedure. He said he'd never felt pain like that in his life. And all of the fights where he'd lost teeth, the times that jail guards thinking they would have some fun, threw him in a cell with 10 African-Americans that loved to have the opportunity to beat down a skinhead. He said, this was by far worse. The doctor asked him if he was going to be able to continue. His answer was, I don't have a choice. If I want a normal life, I have to go through with this. 25 surgeries later, 16 months later, his face and neck was free of all the marks on his flesh that linked him to his past. The FBI continued to warn them, even here in Middle Tennessee, that they were in great danger. And so once the final surgery was done, they packed their bags and they moved to an undisclosed location to begin a new life. Isn't it interesting how that illustrates the fact that an inner person can have their heart set so much upon one thing, but yet the outer person and the outer flesh can sometimes communicate and be involved in something that is totally different. As a matter of fact, Julie laughs at him now as he holds their child. She talks about his clean-cut hair 
and his little thick glasses that he wears. And she laughs and says, he looks more like a nerd than a skinhead, doesn't he? Isn't it wonderful when your life can change? Isn't it wonderful when your life can change for the better? But isn't it true that sometimes we're always going to carry that battle with the flesh? In Romans, the seventh chapter, we see three laments where he is just crying out saying, look at what I'm going through. I'd like to read to you just one of those laments, if you would. Go with me to Romans, the seventh chapter. Let's look at verse 14. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. So see, if we follow the law, we'll be spiritual. But I am carnal. Our fleshly body is carnal, sowed under sin. And so in this lamenting, look what he does in 19 and 20 as he describes it. For the good that I will to do. The good is the law of God. What I want to do, he says, I do not do. He finds his flesh pulling against him. But the evil that I will not to do, The evil that I say, I don't want to do this. My heart is set upon God and His law. I don't want to do it. He says, that I practice. Sometimes I find myself doing this, Paul says. 20, that if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul says, I'm understanding this. Sin wants to make its way through my flesh. Sin wants to make its way into my life. And what I want to do is I want to get sin out of my life. I want to live for the Lord. What are the three questions that Paul asked that surely if he asked them, they're for good reason that we need to really study them and find the answer. Look with me, if you will, the sixth chapter. In the sixth chapter in verse 21, the first question, what fruit did you then, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. I like the new American standard that's on the screen there on the lower part. Notice, instead of saying what fruit, it says what benefit. In other words, here in Romans, the sixth chapter, I want you to think about it. He's talking about us being lost in sin. And he says, but I have crucified that old man of sin. In other words, I've changed my mind. I don't want to live that life anymore. And so I've passed through the waters of baptism. The Lord forgave me of the sin. So now I'm alive. Why are you a living creation? Your sins are washed away and you have changed in your mind. You're no longer going to live that sinful life. And now Paul is writing really to people that are struggling living a righteous life. They're coming back around to sin again. You see what he's saying? They're coming back around to sin. He's saying, that's not what you were doing when you became a Christian. You said you were going to put that away. And so now he's saying, look back. What does a life of sin benefit? Listen, every one of us needs to answer that question. How does sin benefit a life? And if we'll dwell on it in the Word of God, what we'll find out is it's not a benefit. Instead, it's a shame. Sin always brings shame. And so what he's pointing out here is Satan wants to convince us that there's a lot of good in sin. Satan wants to convince us, walk right in. And instead, there is no benefit. It is a shame. We're not leaving that point. We're just going to develop it a little further. Now go to the seventh chapter. In the seventh chapter in verse 12, we see a second question that ties into the first question. Has then what is good become death to me? That's 7 and 13. Has then what is good become death to me? What do you mean, Paul, what is good? When he's talking about what is good here, he's talking about the law of God. Now, let's take a quick time out. 
The first part of Romans, the seventh chapter, the first paragraph and even in the second paragraph of Romans, the seventh chapter, is talking about the old law has been fulfilled and now since it is fulfilled, we no longer live under it. In verse four, now we are married to Christ and to his covenant. That's an important lesson. But now when you come down to where we're picking up in the 13th chapter and toward the end, the emphasis here is more in, in, in uh, an application that could apply not only to the old law, but it even applies to the commandments of God, God's law. In other words, Christ not only came and brought grace and mercy, but Christ also brought commandments. You remember John 14 and 15? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so now he's talking about the law here, and he says the law is good. See there in 13 again? Has then what is good, what is good, that's the law, has it become death to me? Well, I don't understand. What do you mean has it become death? If we were to study 11, 10, 11, and 12 in depth, which we don't have time to do right now, but let me just say this to you. What Paul says, and, and you almost have to smile the way he lays it out, but boy, it's our human nature. He lays this out and says, here's what I find out. God gives a law, and I don't always keep it, which is sin. God gives a law, and I sin equals, hence the problem is the law. And Paul says, no, 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 no. There is an enemy and it is you. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. We struggle because we can't keep the law perfectly. And so you see what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't lose an appreciation for the law. But we regularly hear people that call themselves Christians speaking about the law of God as if it's a horrible thing. They'll talk about how great grace is and how, aren't you glad we don't live under law anymore? I don't know what book they're reading in. You won't find anywhere the idea that God's law is anything but wonderful. Now, does that mean we don't need grace? Absolutely not. Because there's things that grace provides that cannot be provided by the law. In other words, by God's law, we cannot have grace. By God's law, we cannot have mercy. By God's law, we cannot have sanctification. But then you say, well, why does he call God's law good if it doesn't do those things? Well, it does some other things. And one of the things that it does is something that we desperately need. God's law convicts. The idea of conviction is to feel guilt. We live in a time where, and it's probably no different than other times, it's human nature, where individuals are very comfortable in sin. Matter of fact, they're so comfortable in sin that they feel no shame for their sin, and they do not believe that there's anything wrong with it. And so we read the rest of verse 13, and we see what the law is good for. We see this conviction. Read with me, if you will. He's asked the question in 13, has then what is good become death to me? And with an exclamation mark, he says, certainly not. It's not, it's not the problem with the law, because the problem is sin. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. God, what is it that you want us to appreciate about the law? In this verse, he says, I want you to see two things about the law. If you will spend your life reading the law of God, you're going to see sin 
as sin, and you're going to see that sin is exceedingly sinful. I don't understand the big deal. See, sin is sin. Okay, I want you to imagine you sit down at the table for supper with your family, and one person at the table in their glass is poison. Does it matter to you if you see poison as poison? No, I don't mind. Go ahead. Whoever drinks it up, that'll be fine. That's how foolish it is to say, I don't really care if I see sin as sin. Sin destroys our soul, period. We better be concerned with whether or not we can identify sin as sin. The only way you and I can identify sin as sin is we have to know the law of God. This very same book, the book of Romans, the first chapter, verse 16 is about the gospel. Verse 17 tells us that it's in the gospel, that the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's in the gospel in verse 18 that the wickedness and the sin is revealed. Listen, if we do not know the word of God, we do not know what is sin. And also, if we don't know the word of God, we don't know that sin is exceedingly sinful. If we don't know the Word of God, we'll convince ourselves that it's really no big deal about sin. How many times have you heard people say this? Well, everybody's doing it. Well, I hope it, it can't be wrong. Do you see how many people are doing it? Friends, I'm not trying to make light of something or, 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 or speak disrespectful. But when you listen to Jesus' words, the majority of creation is going to spend condemnation for an eternity. If my idea is I'm going to look around and see what everybody's doing and try to figure out if it's right, That's wrong. How do I know what's right? Turn with me, Will, to Ezra, the ninth chapter. Let's look at a couple of passages very quickly here. Ezra, the ninth chapter, we got a problem taking place here, except Ezra was the only one that was realizing it. The people wouldn't join in with him in this. And notice what he says in Ezra 9 and 6 is the people were moving away from God. And I said, oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now the people around him were concerned about their guilt, but notice why he was. He was concerned about their guilt because he knew that it went higher than their lives. He knew that their guilt went all the way to God. And the greatest reproach of sin is that it is a reproach against God. That is the greatest consequence of sin. And look at the very similar teaching in Jeremiah, the sixth chapter. Jeremiah is pleading with Judah. And now the priests are wicked. In other words, the religious leaders are wicked. The people are wicked. It's almost as if everybody's wicked and Jeremiah can't get anybody to listen to him. And so he says in verse 15 about the people, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall, at the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. What's the problem here? They're committing sin and they have no shame. You remember several weeks ago we talked about the digression, how somebody first walks and then they stand and then they sit. When somebody first walks by sin, they start feeling some shame. But the longer they stand there, they feel less shame. And when they sit down, they feel no shame. Now here's the question. If you honestly believe that a sin is not a sin, will you still be held accountable? Notice this verse. They felt like they were doing nothing wrong, and he says, I'll punish them and I'll cast them down. Look, whether or not I'm shameless 
has nothing to do with on the day of judgment us being held accountable for our sins. What did they need? Back up to verse 10. This is what they needed. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised. In other words, they won't hear. And they cannot heed. You can't obey something when you won't listen. And what were they not listening to? Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Isn't it interesting that they were welcoming sin, but the word of God was a reproach. They enjoyed sin for a season, Hebrews 11 and 25, but they had no joy in the word of God. If you or you've heard someone say, you know, I I live a pretty good life and I'm thankful that the Lord died for me, but I I tell you what, I'm really not that sinful and and really what I do is not really that big a sin. I'm I'm really a pretty all right person. Listen, I'm just going on what the Bible teaches. When someone says that, you can rest assured they do not delight in the Word of God. When we delight in the Word of God, you know what we find out? We are exceedingly sinful. Sin is horrible. There's not anybody here perfect. And so what becomes of that? Then we can say things like the great apostle Paul when he said, I was chief among sinners. You know your Bible well enough to know I misquoted that, right? That's the way we apply it. We applied as if to say, you remember Paul, he looked back at his life when he was persecuting Christians and he was doing all that bad stuff and, and he says, I was chief among... No, he didn't. He was regretful of all those things and he mentions those things from time to time, but he used the present tense. He says, I am chief among sinners. He said, Paul, how could you be chief among sinners? Because I delight in the law of the Lord and the more I read God's law, the more I realize I'm a sinner and God's law helps me realize what sin is and how horrible it is. I like the quote of Robert Haldane when he said, men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they have previously discovered the holiness of God and His law. When somebody doesn't see the seriousness of sin... They definitely do not understand the law of God and the holiness of God. Where does that bring us? That's exactly what Paul said in the book of Romans. Look at Romans 7 and 22. For I what? For I delight. In what? In the law of God according to the inward man. So he says, I have this inward man. I have this mind. I have this heart. And I I love the law of God. And I'm set up on the law of God. That's what I want to do. But there's a problem. We battle the flesh. I want to quickly show you three passages. And we absolutely don't have time to develop them. But you probably know what they say. You remember Psalm, the first chapter? We talked about that last week, about the man that's not going to walk or stand or say, or we talked about it a few weeks ago. How is it that he didn't stay there? Notice verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate. David also said in Psalm 38 and 18, For I will declare my iniquity, I will be anguished over my sin. Was sin a big deal to David? 
He says, I'm in anguish over it. It's not something small. I'm ashamed of it. I wish I'd have never done it. And look what he says in Psalm 97 and 10. You who love the Lord hate evil. Could the message be any stronger? We battle. As a matter of fact, when we go back to Romans 7, and we'll close with this, Romans 7 you see there in verse 22 where he says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Notice this civil war that takes place. Verse 23, But I see another law in my members. Now he's talking about in his flesh. Warning against the law of the mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And that causes him in 24 to cry out, O wretched man that I am. Wretched is the idea of someone who's going through intense trials and they are miserable. Paul Tell us about your life. And he says, I have my mind set upon Christ and upon his law. And I have a heart that is set upon that. But I have a physical, a fleshly, a carnal nature that I find myself in a battle. And I too often lose that battle. And he says, I feel like a wretched man. And so he cries out a question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will bring me out? Who will rescue me? And the answer is, I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. We really said all of that to leave you with this next slide. I hope this is something that you'll think about. I don't mean just right now. I'm talking about this afternoon. I hope tomorrow driving to work you'll cut off the radio and and just think about this. I hope you'll pray about this. I hope you'll study about this. If our life is not in a line, we cannot be what God wants us to be. We must, we must allow Christ to reign in our life. What does that mean? That means having a mind that says, I want God's will to be done in everything. And we're going to have a fleshly body that's going to try to pull us in every other direction. And we have to allow our mind to reign over our body. We're going to have temptations that are wrong. That's why they're temptations. We have to have a strong enough mind and commitment to say, God, I want to win this battle. But too often times, we start giving in and we let the flesh reign. And then to keep from feeling guilty, we let the mind make excuses for why the flesh can reign. And when we do that, Christ is somewhere on the floor of our life. This morning, Thank God for Jesus Christ. Because without Him, we would all be in that situation where we would long for a better life, but there would be no hope. But even with Him, as long as we're on this earth, there has to remain a discipline. There has to remain a focus where we get up every day And with our mind and our spiritual heart, we say, God, reign in me. I want your will to be over my fleshly will. And this morning, if you've never begun that journey, wouldn't this be a perfect time to do that? 
This morning, if you need to come back to that journey, wouldn't this be a perfect time to align your life to God's will? Look, in a sense, there's not anything to be ashamed of saying, I want to get my life in alignment. According to what we've studied this morning, the shame is when someone says they don't. We've all had it out of line. Let's make sure that we leave here this morning all in a line with the will of God. If you're ready to become a Christian and be immersed into Christ, if you're ready to come back and be restored, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.